So welcome everyone. I know that uh, Kathy and Dave have already warmly welcomed you. And I also want to extend a warm welcome, welcome to each of you, all of you, old friends, new friends. It really is a joy to uh, be here with each of you for these next 20 days in a way that's really quite unique and quite special in our culture. And I'd like to begin uh, the opening talk this evening with a poem uh, by David White called Tillico Lake. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. As we enter into retreat, each one of us alone and also all of us together, we're creating or co-creating a temporary spiritual community, a temporary spiritual village, we could say. We come together, as one of my Burmese teachers says, as a Dhamma family or a Dharma family. Dhamma, the Pali word, and Dharma, the Sanskrit word. As we begin this period of commitment to exploring and cultivating and deepening our inner life. Over these 20 days, we'll be expanding and deepening our capacity for a focused, concentrated attention with the possibility of moving toward, or maybe for some of you, moving into some degree of absorption, maybe into jhana, certainly developing our capacity for concentration, a focused attention. Our Samatha practice also includes a growing intuitive sense of the conditions necessary for the blossoming of a clear insight into the nature of things. I think it's fair to say that for many people there's a tremendous amount of time and energy Uh, spent, or maybe more accurately, expended cultivating an outer life. Doing things. Producing things. 
acquiring things, going places, being somebody, being something, becoming somebody, becoming something. These 20 days will really be quite special and unique in that none of this is really important, nor will it be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and expectations of the world. Whether you've engaged in this particular way of practicing previously, or if this is a new approach to concentration, uh, which may be relatively new or maybe brand new for you, you very likely know the experience that arises for us various experiences that arise for us at the onset of a retreat. A sense of entering into sacred space and time. A sense of entering into a kind of sanctuary, both within our surroundings and within ourselves. And for me, whether I'm entering the teaching mode or beginning a period of intensive personal practice, there's always this feeling in my heart of stepping into sacred space and sacred time, both inwardly and in relationship to my surroundings. It's really a beautiful and precious footstep that we are taking. Up here in the Taos Ski Valley, We're in the midst of very obvious beauty and the sacredness of all of the life surrounding us up here. And also the incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening here all around us. The changes in the light, dark to light, and again light to dark, back and forth. The weather, late fall, with all of the amazing changes that happen here in northern New Mexico, up in the mountains. Many, many manifestations of change. All the forms of life, the community of beings that we share this space and place with. Many birds, various insects, other creatures, many other creatures actually, and the trees thousands of trees and all the other manifestations of plant life and of course the very air itself. The natural world so close around us and so easily available to connect with up here. It's really a great gift that we're not separate from. A gift that in fact holds us in itself. This natural world is a very fine teacher for us of the sacred and the perfectly natural fluidity of the diversity and change that just simply is. So it's a perfect mirror for the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. 
And we might consider that, in fact, nature is no problem uh, to itself. No problem in itself to itself. We can learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just-isness, the just-beingness, we could say, the absolute open-hearted presence of this perfectly natural world. For many of us, I think one aspect of our human experience includes a natural and often a quite easy open-hearted connection in moments of a very simple, clear presence when we really take the time to arrive and to be, to really just simply be. For instance, maybe today with the late afternoon light, tomorrow morning, an early sunrise, the changing colors at the, of the sky at the close of a day. And, of course, all the various particulars of how late fall just simply displays itself in small and in larger ways. And, of course, with any of this, moments of a silent, simple, clear presence in our body, heart, and mind any time of the day, any time of the night. One day in the 92nd year of her life, my mother stopped for a few moments during our daily out-of-door walk, and she stooped over, looking long and silently at a flower that was very fully uh, in its blooming, very, very full in its liveliness. And after a couple of moments, she just simply said out loud with really great reverence, it's great to be alive. Probably to each one of us has come some unexpected unsuspected and maybe even exceptional moments during times of a very simple clear unfettered attention moments what we could of what we could call a spiritual attention and i think for many of us the natural world is often the place where this happens for us most easily at least at first As the days of this retreat unfold, you'll be learning how to develop, purify, and focus this simple, clear, unfettered attention. One of the wonderful things about being here at the Columbine Inn is that there's quite a degree of accumulated energy all of the people who have come here to learn and to practice, all of the teachings that have 
been offered here and all of the various teachers who have offered them. It's really a gift of a symbiotic and ever-expanding energy that we're both partaking of and adding to. So how fortunate that we're here. During these retreat days, we have the great gift of being taken care of in a very beautiful and simple way. All of our basic needs being met. While you're here, life is pared down. It's simplified for most of you, or maybe all of you to some degree, from your usual daily life activities, daily life demands, and the various seeming needs of daily life. There's really not much to do over these 20 days. Sitting, walking, eating, hearing, spending a little time each day with your yogi job, sleeping, not too much, but not too little, (laughs) and most importantly, relaxing and diligently learning to cultivate a clear, mindful, focused attention. So compared to the ways of the world, there's really not very much to do over these next weeks, which is a very good thing to remember. Because some of you may have such a a strong habit of keeping busy that you may go on unwittingly, go on creating all sorts of things to do, just simply out of habit. I think it's fair to say that our mind is sometimes kind of like a junkyard, meaning that there's a lot of rubbish that we put into and that we, in fact, store in our mind. Conversations, maybe magazine articles, Tons of stuff from online, from the computer. All sorts of entertainments. We just pour it all in. And keep pouring it all in. For years. Someone once said to me that there was a veritable, I think she said there was a veritable jam session going on in her mind. The problem is that actually all of this makes us very, very tired. And then, of course, there's the worldly work that you do. Maybe to make a living, volunteer work, which may be very compassionate and very creative work. But if we really don't take the time to replenish we can give out, no matter how good or how fulfilling our work is. The more usual ways of replenishing and rejuvenating and resting, so what are they? Well, maybe watching television, watching various kinds of things on the computer, going out somewhere to do something, 
these aren't really truly rejuvenating. They don't give us a real rest. In fact, even sleep doesn't really give the mind a true rest. For genuine, deep relaxation and a genuine, deep rejuvenation, we need to give our mind and heart some inner space. We need to clear out the junkyard. We need to quiet the inner noise. And the way to do this, one very effective way to do this, is to keep the mind, keep the attention, purely in the moment, in a very simple way. This is what's healing and is really one of the very best rests for the heart and the mind. The mind and body relaxed, alert, focused. Even with just a few moments of this, one really begins to feel refreshed, clear-minded, wakeful, And so we begin our retreat learning and practicing towards keeping the mind focused in the moment with the attention very purely and simply on the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath in the area of the nostrils. A wonderfully simple, though not always so easy approach to training the mind to be and to stay simply in the moment. In light of this, one of the things that we're practicing here in retreat is renunciation. In this case, meaning letting go of busyness and letting go of the usual distractions that you might engage in to try to relax out of all of the busyness. This is really one of the gifts of renunciation. Simplifying our life and just simply being. And as I already mentioned, not becoming anything or anybody. And not filling up the mind with more stuff but rather just simply and directly connecting with your experience of the simple sensations of the breath just as it is in the moment, by moment, by moment. And so we begin together in this sanctuary, this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders respect and acceptance. What a great gift you have given yourselves, a great and valuable gift, and that you also give to each other simply by being here practicing together in this extended Dhamma family. 
For just about everyone, there are various mental and physical states that come off, come up at the onset of a retreat. So maybe excitement, maybe some nervousness or some worry, maybe a feeling of delight, certainly maybe some various degrees of expectation. Maybe there's a sense of relief. Ah, at last I'm in retreat. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Lots of energy moving through one's body and mind and heart. Even for people who have sat many, many retreats. Because, as you know, each retreat is unpredictable in the unique way that it will unfold. For me, in teaching or beginning a time of personal retreat, many of these very same flavors of energy move through my mind and my heart and my body. It's just how our human nature works. How it works as we enter into something new. And how very fortunate it is that we're embodied as we are in human form. This precious human existence. Making it possible, in fact, to practice. Making it possible to be able to look within and cultivate a pure, concentrated and balanced heart and mind rooted in kindness, compassion and wisdom. We're actually a minority, a small minority on this earth, in this universe, and who knows beyond. Think about it for a moment. There are more than 11 million species living on this planet. 11 million, more than 11 million. Consider just insects. A friend uh, who lives here in Taos and owns and runs a plant nursery once told me that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human on the planet. How fortunate, in fact, to be embodied in the way that we are. This human mind and heart and body are really the most conducive towards developing the purity of a concentrated mind rooted rooted in kindness and compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of wisdom. Because because of all of the, the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. There's just enough of each. Certainly sometimes a little more of one, a little more of another, sometimes a lot more of one, a lot more of another, times some huge handfuls of one and seeming none or hardly any of the other. But the truth is that it changes. It changes very quickly, back and forth, within a week, daily, 
even within moments. So really this human realm offers us the very best conditions that we could ask for. This is the place. This rare and precious human realm that we fortunately find ourselves in. It's said that if all the world were water and a wooden ring about one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and blown about by the winds, it said that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We really are a rare species within the enormous breadth of life, all the life forms on this planet. The ancient texts tell us that those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions and opportunities and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the purification of the mind and the heart, to practice the way of truth and wisdom, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. And so here we all are, with all of the conditions and all of the blessings in place, and a wonderful 20-day opportunity ahead of us. A time of cultivation and discovery, a time of exploration, purification and surprise and understanding, which some of the time might not be so easy and may even be quite challenging at times. But all the while, your time here very much includes the real potential of bringing forth experiences of deep relaxation, calm, tranquility, joy, happiness, equanimity, and illumination. As we enter into this period of sustained spiritual practice, there are a few specific supports that are very readily available for you. And so I'd like to spend a little bit of time now taking a look at some of these with you. Our first support is the wonderful gift of silence. This silence that gently holds us in itself. Silence is really quite amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. It's infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container of silence that has no boundaries and that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within the silence, there are sounds, all kinds of sounds that arise and pass 
At times, of course, you'll hear the sound of my voice and possibly occasionally other voices. You may hear sighs, maybe cries, maybe laughs, certainly coughs and sneezes and moving bodies, maybe the occasional roar of an engine, the sound of bells, birds, maybe dogs, maybe other creatures, the sound of the wind, other weather sounds, all kinds of sounds arising and passing in the midst of silence. And sometimes we interpret sound as noise. It's important to note that this is an interpretation and to notice it. Is this, is this or that sound noise? What happens if it's interpreted as noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to just simply hearing? Just simply receiving the sound? Or is there a contraction? Some form of aversion, resistance, the irritation of being disturbed? If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is basically one of relaxed acceptance. Just simply hearing and directly, simply and directly hearing, which may be accompanied with a simple pleasant or unpleasant or a neutral feeling tone. And of course we're not always in this relationship to sound. So it becomes a practice. Hearing is a practice. So with an open heart, just mindfully notice your response or reaction to sound and noticing it without judgment, self-judgment, without that, in the midst of silence. Sometimes within the silence of a retreat setting, it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all of the windows of the universe, maybe of life itself, have been thrown wide open within us. And when this is our experience, there can be a sense of freshness and beauty an inner sense of open-hearted receptivity, stillness, a sense of a fresh clarity having been led in. Over the years, I've heard that many people find this support of silence in a retreat to be one of the most precious aspects of retreat time because it holds everything but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply and naturally comes and goes in the spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And again, the key here is that you don't have to be anybody. You really don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to present yourself. You don't have to 
be a somebody or become a somebody. You just simply be. And it really is a great relief to actually just simply be. Silence is where we learn to sense, see, and really, truly know our experience. In this respectful, supportive, and really beautiful container of silence lies the possibility for the boundless blossoming of our practice. So our first support, silence. I always like to take some time to explore it at the onset of a retreat because there's really much more to it than just not talking. Our second support is taking refuge. People take refuge in all kinds of things. In various things on the physical plane and in all sorts of ideas and beliefs and conjectures on the mental plane. We could call this virtual refuge, which then creates really only virtual happiness in this constantly changing ephemeral world. So what does taking refuge mean in the context of supporting our practice? various ways we might recognize and experience refuge in this context, in the context of our practice, is as a place of shelter, a place of protection and safety, a sacred space, a sacred place. I once found a dictionary definition of refuge that said, refuge is a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather which is actually quite an appropriate uh, metaphor for some periods of our practice, as I'm sure each of you know. Refuge is also often experienced as a place of strength and a place of clarity within our own mind and heart, and also might reflect the strength and the clarity of those around us, our teachers and our spiritual friends who are on the path with us, our Dhamma family. The Buddha's teaching can be thought of as a kind of building with its own distinct foundation and levels and stairs and roof. And like any other building, the teaching also has a door. And in order to enter, we have to enter through this door. The door of the entrance to the teachings of the Buddha is the going for refuge to the three jewels. From ancient times until present, until the present, going for refuge has functioned as the entryway to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, giving us admission, we could say, to the rest of the teachings from its lowest story all the way up to the top. All of those who embrace the teachings of the Buddha 
do so by passing through this door of taking refuge. While those who are already committed regularly reaffirm their conviction by continuing to make this threefold commitment, which is, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha. And I've heard from some people that they think that this step might is kind of somewhat slight or very commonplace. Especially, they say, in comparison to the lofty teaching and practices and achievements lying beyond. But I feel it's very, really very important for all of us on this path in that this act of taking refuge It's this act that imparts the direction and forward momentum to the entire path, practice and teachings and practice of the Buddhist path. Bhikkhu Bodhi says that from a Buddhist perspective, our human situation is similar to an iceberg, he said. A small fraction of its mass appears above the surface. The vast substratum remains below, hidden out of view. Concealed from ourselves in usually quite subtle ways, our desires condition our perceptions and twist them to fit into the mold that they themselves want and are habituated to impose. Consequently, our minds very often work by way of selection and exclusion. And we often mostly take note of the things that are agreeable to our preconceptions, agreeable to our habits. And we often either maybe blot out or we distort those things that seem to threaten our habitual preconceptions. From this standpoint, we begin to understand more comprehensively and more clearly that our ordinary sense of security is actually a false security. And it's sustained by a lack of awareness of the mind's capacity, our mind's capacity for subterfuge. Our minds are pretty tricky, actually. And we also begin to understand that the real way to safety and security lies through clear, mindful insight, not through wishful thinking, wishful hoping. And so we begin to practice sharpening and widening our inner vision, reaching beyond fear, reaching beyond our habituated preconceptions, perceptions, and imaginations. All of those things that have lulled us, so to say, into a comfortable kind of complacency by turning away 
or by running after myriad distractions. And all of this calls for courage and determination. And so we begin by taking refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, time and again, all the way along through our practice. One of my favorite ways to bring light to taking refuge is to take a look at some of the wonderful classical uh, similes or metaphors that are given in the texts for each of the three jewels. So I'd like to share four of my favorite similes or metaphors with you this evening. The first simile compares the Buddha to the sun. For his appearance in the world is like the sun. This is from the text. For his appearance in the world is like the sun rising over the horizon. His teaching of the true Dhamma is like the net of the sun's rays reaching out over the earth. That's the Dhamma, the the, uh, refuge of the Dhamma. Dispelling the darkness and the cold of the night, giving warmth and light to all beings. The Sangha is like the beings for whom the darkness of night has been dispelled, who go about their affairs enjoying the warmth and the radiance of the sun. The second simile compares the Buddha to the full moon, the jewel of the nighttime sky, His teaching of the Dhamma is like the moon shedding its beams of light over the world, cooling off the heat of the day. The Sangha is like the persons who go about in the night to see and enjoy the refreshing splendor of the moonlight. And the third simile, the Buddha is likened to a great rain cloud. Notice it's all nature, natural occurrences here. The third simile, um, the Buddha's likened to a great rain cloud spreading out across the countryside at a time when the land has been parched with with the long summer's heat. The teaching of the true, true Dhamma is like the downpour of the rain, which inundates the land with water to the plants and giving plants water to the plants and the vegetation. And the Sangha is like the plants the trees, the shrubs, the bushes, and the grass, which thrive and flourish when nourished by the rain pouring down from the cloud, from the Buddha cloud. The fourth simile compares the Buddha to a lotus flower, the paragon of beauty and purity. Just as the lotus grows up in a muddy lake, but rises above the water and stands in full splendor, unsoiled by the mud, so the Buddha having grown up in the world, overcomes the world and abides in its midst, untainted by its impurities. The Buddha's teaching of the true true Dhamma is like the sweet, perfumed fragrance emitted by the lotus flower, giving delight to all. And the Sangha is like the host of bees who collect around the lotus, gathering up the pollen and fly off to their hives to transform it into honey. So some wonderful similes, metaphors, a way of 
looking at <clears throat> refuge. So taking refuge, the great gift of support as you practice through this retreat, the beautiful gift of refuge in the three jewels, in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the next support, the last support that I'd like to explore a bit with you this evening as we move into retreat mode is the practice of sila, a Pali word that translates as virtue, meaning living ethically in relationship to all forms of life, living with a very deep moral sensitivity and respect towards all forms of life, including ourselves. The Buddha offered these particular teachings and practices as precepts or guidelines, meaning that they're really not rigid rules laid upon us from the outside, but rather the ground of our life as our practice. Here in retreat, our life as our practice, and in life outside of a retreat setting. The overall underlying principle of each and all of these guidelines or these precepts is non-harming, with the intention and the practice being to connect to all forms of life with deep respect and a caring heart, honoring life in all of its forms, and then to act from this place. Any one of these guidelines might light up as a point of practice for us at any moment during this retreat. And when this shows up for us in relationship to something we maybe said, maybe something we've done, and maybe something we've thought, it really offers us an opportunity to extend our practice of focused attention and mindfulness into this particular moment of our experience. And some words from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, regarding this uh, aspect of um, the guidelines, the precepts, and their basic Uh, intention of non-harming. And this is called harmlessness. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. See yourself and others. Then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? One who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister, your brother, is like you. She, he, wants to be at ease. Never harm her, never harm him. And in this life, and when you leave this life, you too will find happiness. There's a great beauty and ease 
that resides in the heart, in the mind, and in the body when we live ethically. During the years when I was practicing with uh, Saidao, Venerable Saidao Upandita, one of my Burmese teachers, when I would go into the house where he was staying for my practice interviews with him, every time I went in there, I was gently but quite profoundly struck by the energy of freshness, lightness, beauty, and ease that pervaded that space and that also emanated from his persona, the fruits of a long life deeply imbued with sila. As our practice deepens and matures, we come to understand what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on deepening levels, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. This is really the ground. Sila is really the ground of what allows our practice of concentration to take hold evolve and blossom. In this retreat, we'll chant the refuges and the precepts together um, on Dhamma Talk evenings, just prior to the Dhamma Talk. And we'll take, all of us will take five precepts, and I'll go on uh, to offer eight precepts if in fact there's anyone who's interested in taking the eight precepts. And any one of you are welcome, of course, to try practicing with eight precepts for any amount of time during this retreat. So this evening, when I finish the talk in a few minutes, we'll chant the five precepts together and maybe for some of you eight precepts as we step into our retreat. So all of these wonderful supports, they're all here for us over these 20 days. The simplicity of daily life here in retreat, the ambiance and the availability of the natural world surrounding us here. The silence. Refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And the five or the eight precepts, the guidelines for living life together here in retreat. In closing this evening's talk, I'd like to read some excerpts from a book called Conversations with Nadia Bolanger. Nadia was a French composer. She was also a conductor and a teacher who taught many of the leading composers and musicians of the 20th century. She also performed as a pianist and an organist. And this is uh, some excerpts from this Conversations with Nadia Bolanger. I had the good fortune to be brought up by a remarkably intelligent mother. 
She adored me. She had lost a child before I was born, so I was a miraculous new arrival. But she loved me enough to be dispassionate in her judgments. There was one thing she could not tolerate, lack of attention. From the first, I grew up with this absolutely attentiveness, which is vital to self-awareness. With certain people, there's such a force of concentration that everything becomes important. So before encouraging anyone, you must find out whether they're capable of loving, of interesting themselves in what they're doing, whatever it may be, for its own sake. I don't know whether attentiveness can be taught. I would say that anyone who acts without paying attention to what he's, she or she or he is doing is wasting her life. I go as far to say that life is denied by lack of attention, whether it be cleaning windows or trying to write a masterpiece or meditating, I would add. She didn't put that in there. There are people who shake hands like dead fish. Not very pleasant. Conversely, when some people shake your hand, you register an exchange, however brief, an extraordinary exchange between that person and you. My sister was 19. We were walking in the gardens of the Villa Medici. In the gardens, we had the illusion of youth, which thinks it will last forever. And there was also an old woman doing the weeding, her skin all wrinkled with traces of what have, must have been extraordinary beauty. We passed. She raised her head. She smiled an ineffable smile and said to us, Buongiorno. The smile by itself was a gift. You must have understood and thanked her. That overwhelming moment produced by the buongiorno was nothing in itself. It was only an old woman gathering old weeds, but she had a crystalline soul. She gave, it gave her a kind of genius of the heart, a sanctity of spirit, and having nothing to express but what her heart inspired, she created something beyond herself, beyond me. She perceived the existence of something which made the day fine. She knew it was beautiful, and everything deriving from it was a means of grace. It seems to me that attention is the state of mind which allows us to perceive what has to be. It's a form of the vision experienced by the great mystics on days when they were granted a profound concentration. This year there was a concert by Menuhin. He gave a number of encores and the last was the slow movement of Brahms' sonata in D minor. What happened then was part of an indescribable completeness. The whole house found itself in its grip. The whole house found itself in the grip of the same mute emotion, which created silence of an extraordinary quality. Everyone understood, felt, participated in what he or she himself or herself must have been feeling or what he himself I think referring to Menuhin must have been feeling I don't think he will ever forget that moment in some way it passed beyond him to a higher level which we very rarely reach 
we are too weak to scale those heights very often, to realize the potential available if we could really commune with ourselves. And so now I'd like to uh, take refuges and precepts together. So you have a copy of them if you need them. There's copies in the hallway there if you don't have them. Is there anybody that wants to take eight precepts this evening? Nobody. Okay, we'll just do five. It may change as we go along. I'll I'll ask every now and then. (laughs) So we will do them in Pali. um, And I don't do call and response. We'll do them slowly enough so that we do them all together. And when you get a chance, if you haven't already, you can read the English on the right side. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddham saranang gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiampi buddham saranam gachami Dutiampi dhammam saranam gachami Dutiampi sangam saranam gachami Tatiampi buddham saranam gachami Tatiampi dhammam saranam gachami Tatiampi sangam saranam gachami Panati pata veramani sikapadam samadhyami Adina dana veramani sikapadam samadhyami Abrahmacharya veramani sikapadam samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mareya 
Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami And we'll do the dedication. Idam me silam Maga palanyanasa Pachayo o tu And we'll sit silently now for just a few minutes. And some words from the writer Anais Nin. And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.